right. Take your Bibles and make your way to Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 1. This is uh, kind of the back half of last week's sermon, if you will. And I've just entitled this sermon, Dying with a Smile. Dying with a Smile. I want to remind you that not only do we have communion today, we have fellowship meal to follow that. And we hope that you will join us. There are about 300 crockpots in there, I think. Now, there is a lot of crockpots today, which is good. So we'll have a good time enjoying what uh, has been prepared for us. But right now, let's take our Bibles. So we're in Philippians 1. And uh, I'm going to read this scripture to you from verse 19 through 26. Paul says this, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Christ. Both those things are so important. Our prayers and the fact that the Spirit of Christ is supplied to believers. According to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness, Paul says to them, as always, because Paul was bold, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. Because Paul wasn't sure which was going to happen. Then he shares with them the theme of his life. This was Paul's mission statement, if you will, his purpose statement. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. For I'm hard pressed between the two, having a desire to depart be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. And what Paul's actually saying in that last verse, it's kind of, it's worded kind of funny with a direct object there, um, and there's several ways it can be translated. What he's actually saying is, I, that if I can come to you again, your rejoicing in Christ is going to go through the roof. Does that make sense? And, and for him, it's, remember, for me to live is what? Christ. So Paul's saying, I'm probably going to make it out of here, and I'm probably going to see you again so that you can rejoice in Christ all the more. And in fact, we believe historically he did make it out of there. This was not the time that would lead to his death. So let's do a little word association here. Barring your understanding or your recent introduction to Philippians 1.21, um, what, would, what would we answer for a word association with the word death? What comes to mind? What, what words come to mind when we think of death? Final, the end, the end. Dead, end. dead end for some. What else? Sad. Sad. And it's supposed to be. I think of words like grief, tears, sorrow, right? Now here's the truth, and tell me if this is not correct. Do we not tend to avoid 
thinking or talking about death unless it's absolutely necessary. We, we really do. Um, why do you think that is? Why do you think we avoid the topic of death? It's heavy. It's deep. Right? Yeah. Yeah, we tend to be more superficial. But, but we, don't, we, don't, we don't talk about death very often. Um, when the author, William Saron, was within days of his own death from cancer in 1981, he issued this statement through the Associated Press. And here's what he said. Everybody has got to die. But I have always believed an exception would be made in my case. Now what? Right? Everybody's got, we all know that the, the, the uh, death numbers are 100%. Right? But do we live in light of our impending death? Do we think about it? Right? And the older we get, in some sense, the more you want to live. And I think it's because of wisdom. It's more you want to accomplish. But let me share this truth with you. You might write this down. You're not really ready to live until you're ready to die. You think about that for a minute. You're not really ready to live until you're ready to die. So to live properly and purposefully and always in view of both the certainty of death and the uncertainty of when it will occur, that's how we can live properly and purposefully. Death is certain, 100%, and the uncertainty of death is we don't know when. And I wonder, would you want to know when? Have you ever thought about that? Would you want to know the date of your... How many of you say, yeah, you know what, I, I would like to know the date of my death. Raise your hand. Ben. Ben's the only one. Andy, Andy there, maybe a little bit. Jack. Okay, good. There, oh, Jay up in the balcony. I was going to say, there's a, there's a common theme here of immaturity. Then Jay raises his hand. I'll let you... I'll let you figure that one out, Lisa. Uh, we could talk later. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I would. I've pondered that. But if you did, if, you, if somehow God sent you an email and said, here's the date. Seriously, seriously. How would that affect you? It would what? Change the way you live? Okay. What else? How would it change the way you live, I might ask? Exactly. That's exactly right. Uh, many of the great Christians of the past thought often about death. Uh, Martin Luther, the great reformer, said this, Even in the best of health, we should have death always before our eyes. So that we will not expect to remain on this earth forever, but we will have one foot in the air, so to speak. And that's something. Jonathan Edwards, as a young man, wrote down 70 resolutions which he read weekly to keep his life focused. And number nine said this, resolved to think much on all occasions of my dying 
and of the common circumstances which attend death. The Puritan preacher Richard Baxter, who lived with chronic bodily illness, said this, quote, I preach as though I shall never preach again as a dying man to dying men. I submit that you cannot live the Christian life properly unless you understand the Christian perspective of death. Now, here's the reality. Our views on death have got to line up with the truthfulness of God's revelation to us, right? In His Word. And not on the speculations of people devoid of God's Word. And I fear that sometimes we take our cues from people devoid of God's Word on this issue of death. Now, as I developed last week, uh, the Apostle Paul was very clear in his purpose for living, right? Uh, For me to live is Christ... And here's the reality. That is the only purpose for living that adequately takes into account the reality of death. And the fact that it could occur at any moment. And a person who can, with some authenticity, say, for me to live is Christ, can also confidently say, and to die is gain. So let me, let me just say here, I think the reason... We do not look at death as a gain is directly proportionate to how much our life is or is not about Christ. Does that make any kind of sense in here this morning? Does that make sense? Right. I'm glad you're here. I am. And and one of my biggest pet peeves as a kid growing up is when it was a slight crowd on a Sunday and a pastor would get after everybody who was there. I'm like, we're not your problem. So I've, I've tried to not do that. So I'm glad you're here. But here's the thing. Coming to church is wonderful. It's, it is a Christian duty and a delight. Okay? But, but it is important for you to take your family and yourself to God's house. But listen to me, brothers and sisters. It is more important to take God back to your house. Amen? For you to live is Christ. And the more that for you to live is Christ is true, the more easily it will be able to say, and to die is gain. And I fear that part of our big discouragement and disillusionment and fear of death is because we know in our heart of hearts we are not living for or to anything that matters. And I'm talking about people who have the tag Christian attached to their life. So with this in mind, um, for the Christian to die is gain, let let me first start with this thought, and this is in your outline. What to die is gain does not mean, because I think there's some wonky thinking about this. Uh, number one, to die is gain does not mean that a Christian should desire death because he hates life. That's not, and I've read some commentaries that actually said that about Paul. Now, he'd been through a lot. But no, that is not a good or a necessary inference that Paul's saying, you know what, I'm just done, tired, want to go. It's really not what he's saying. You can see that in the text. Um, but sometimes even godly men get into a state of depression that they'd rather die than live. I used to wonder about those guys until I became one of them. And I've been there. And I know the sorrow of those dark chapters. 
where it's like, you know, I'm not going to do anything to hasten my death, but I would also welcome it. And I'm not alone. There are guys like Moses in Numbers 11 and 15, Elijah, 1 Kings 19 and 4, Jeremiah, basically the whole book, <laughs> but specifically in Jeremiah 20, 14 to 18, and Jonah, the pouting prophet. And Jonah 3, or 4, verses 3 and 8, they all hit low points. And they basically turned to God and said, you know what? How about you just kill me? Um, so this is not an opportunity to die as gain, to, to get a, a get-out-of-life free card. doesn't mean that a Christian hates life or desires to die because of that. We should love life and view it as an opportunity to serve the Lord with gratitude. Amen? Amen? Amen. Are we? <laughs> That's right, Simon. He's helping me today. So do we love the Lord? Are we serving Him with gratitude in our hearts? Number two, here's what it does not mean. To die is gain does not mean that a Christian should not grieve over the death of his loved ones. This is a pet peeve of mine, so I'm going to be careful not to spend a lot of time here. But I am so sick and tired of going to funerals that I don't preach where people try to make it a party instead of what it is. It is a time to mourn. I even had an older, wiser pastor in very early on in my ministry. He gave me some good ministry advice, but he gave me some bad stuff too. And, and that's what he told me. He said, yeah, whenever you do a funeral, um, keep it light. And here's what we say. Make it a celebration of their life. Here's what they're not saying, and basically ignore the fact that they're dead. And even as a young, impressionable minister, that was a red flag to me. I'm like, no, there's something wrong about that. Um, until Christ returns, death is still our enemy. Amen? And it robs us of the presence of our loved ones. Right? And the scripture does not condemn grieving. A lot of people use Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians 4.13 that as Christians we do not grieve as those who have no hope. That doesn't say Christians don't grieve. We grieve differently. You can weep in hope. Amen? That's what he's talking about. Scripture doesn't condemn grieving. Paul would say in Romans 12, 15, weep with those who weep. We have Jesus' own example in John eleven thirty five, 35. When he comes to the tomb of Lazarus, knowing what's getting ready to happen. But what does the Bible say in the shortest verse in all of Scripture? Two words, Jesus wept. For some of you, that's the only Scripture you have memorized. But Jesus wept. And that word wept means, doesn't mean that a tear trickled down the corner of his eye. That is a word for heavy weeping. Now, I don't know if he was an ugly crier like myself, but when, when my dam breaks, there's nothing pretty about it. And that's the kind of weeping that is described by this very descriptive Greek word when it says Jesus wept. He wailed. He, he emoted. Uh, tears were flowing from his, his, his eyes. He was in deep sorrow. So it doesn't mean we don't grieve. So what does it mean? What does it mean 
that to die is gain. Well, here's the first one. To die is gain means that a Christian should view death as a means of exalting Christ. Isn't that true? We should view our death as one last way we can put the spotlight off of us and put it onto Jesus. And that's what Paul's saying here. Hey, whether I live or die, my aim is to put the spotlight on Jesus. And if by his faithful witness in dying, Paul could bear witness to the hope of the gospel, and he's ready to go. I'm going to die well. Oh, how many of you want to die well? We need, and, and the, we just need to finish well in the faith, exalting Christ. The time of death for the believer should be a time of bearing witness to the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christians should die well. I've been around a lot of people who have taken their last breath. I've had that opportunity because of my calling. And, it, and that is a precious thing. It really is. Um, we need to die in faith. And die with Jesus' name on our lips. Amen? But I'm here to tell you, you will not do that if you do not live with His name on your lips. Let me give you some examples of dying well. And we must hear these. We should read these often to be both convicted and encouraged. Uh, during the last four years of the reign of Bloody Mary in England, 1555 to 1558, at least 288 people were burned at the stake because they refused to give up their Protestant beliefs and confess Mary's Catholicism. These faithful martyrs viewed their deaths as a means of exalting Christ, just like Paul. The first to die was a godly pastor named John Rogers. Now, he was not allowed to see his wife and ten children while he was in prison. But on the way to his execution, his wife and all ten children, including a baby that was born that he had never seen while he was incarcerated, they stood by the road where he would pass. On his way to his execution, um, he was hardly allowed to stop and say farewell to his family. As he marched to the stake, he calmly repeated Psalm 51. The French ambassador who witnessed the execution wrote that Rogers went to, to death as if he were walking to his wedding. Wow. And in a sense he was. The second martyr, Bishop John Hooper, was entreated with many tears by a friend whom he had led to Christ to recant and thus spare his life. The friend urged him to remember that life was sweet and death was bitter. And Hooper replied thus, eternal life is more sweet and eternal death is more bitter. Wow. The third reformer to die was a guy named Roland Taylor. He was sent from London to the town where he had been a pastor to be burned in front of his former church members as an example. Can you imagine? When he got within two miles of the town, the sheriff asked him how he felt. And he replied, God be praised, Master Sheriff, never better, for now I am almost home. I lack but just two styles to go over. And I am even at my father's house. As his church members lined the streets and greeted him with tears and lamentations, 
he repeatedly said this, I have preached to you God's word and truth and am come this day to seal it with my blood. Death is a gain. The fourth martyr was a guy named Bishop Robert Farrar. And he told a friend before his execution that if he saw him once stir in the fire from the pain of, of his burning, he need not believe the doctrines he had taught. By God's strength, he stood in the flames, holding out his hands until they were burned to stumps. Until a bystander in mercy struck him on the head to put an end to his suffering. The fifth to die was John Bradford at age 35. At the stake, after kissing it, he held his hand towards heaven and cried, O England, England, repent thee of thy sins. Beware of idolatry. Beware of false antichrists. Take heed they do not deceive you. Then he turned to a young man about to be executed with him and said, Be of good comfort, brother, for we shall have a merry supper with the Lord this night. I won't tell you of all 288, don't worry. I could tell you of many others whose courage and witness exalted Christ at their deaths. But let me tell you about one other, the ninth. Him you may have heard of because he was the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cranmer. His story's a little different in that he stood firm through his trial in prison for a long time. But in the final month of his life, his courage failed. Under intense pressure, he signed a paper renouncing the doctrines of the Reformation and embracing Catholicism. But his persecutors hated him so much that they made the mistake of resolving to burn him in spite of his recanting. But what they didn't know was that while he awaited execution, he repented of what he had done. On March 21st, 1556, he was brought into St. Mary's Church and like Samson before the Philistines to make sport of him. I'm sorry to say that a, uh, a man preached a sermon that day and then Kramer was invited to declare his Catholic faith before his execution. To the utter shock of his Catholic captors, he boldly renounced Catholicism, declared the Pope to be Antichrist, and rejected the doctrine of transubstantiation, which says that the host and the wine literally become the body and blood of Christ. In a frenzy, his enemies hurried him out of the church to the stake, and as the flames curled around him, he steadily held into the fire his right hand, that had sinned by signing the recantation. And he said, this unworthy right hand. And he held his left hand up towards heaven as he died. Now, we may not have to die a painful martyr's death, but we should view our death as a time to exalt the Savior, both by our attitudes and by our words. And only then will death be a gain.
This week, I was finally able to spend some time and watch the funeral of my pastor growing up, my youth pastor, the guy who discipled me, John Barta. And the testimony of the pastor who was in the room, his, John's speech was severely affected, but his mind was not. And they were asking him, saying, you know, your, your ability to swallow is severely impaired. Um, your breathing is shallow. You need oxygen and a feeding tube. And although he could not speak well or communicate, he spoke. And the word that came out was no. And then, with great difficulty, his last words to his family were, I want to go home. And they said, home to Oklahoma? He said, no, home to Jesus. Oh, that we would die well. Here's the sorrow of my heart for myself and even as a pastor. We can't even get people to come to church, much less to die well for the sake of Christ. You can't even make it here to live is not Christ for you. Number two, to die is game means that the Christian's death leads to the return on his investment. Isn't that true today? We should be investing in our king and his kingdom. Amen? And when we don't get that return until death, death ushers that return in. Paul had counted everything else as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. We're going to see that in chapter 3 and verse 7. And he had invested his entire life in the goal of knowing and serving Christ. You see, that's what I'm trying to say to you today, beloved. That's the only way to die. And it be a gain is if we've lived in such a way that we can honestly say with some measure of authenticity, for me to live is Christ. Only then does death make any kind of sense and does death not have any victory over us whatsoever. No, death was going to usher him into the presence of God where I am certain he heard these words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord. Can I just ask you right there? Is that what you expect to hear? Honestly, is that what you expect to hear when you die? Well done, good and faithful servant. I, I think... Actually, most of us are hoping to make it there by the skin of our teeth. What's the reality? How awake and aware are we today as to what really matters? Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Listen to this. Knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. What did Jesus say? Hey, if you give as much as a cold cup of water in my name, I'm watching, and that will not go unrewarded. Amen? Man, we should look forward to that. And the only reason we would not look forward to that is because we know our investing has been mighty small indeed. Go read the story. I don't know if one of you fellows can remember who wrote it called The Mansion. We read that short story. I want to say it was Chesterton. Wrote the mansion. I could be wrong. But the story of a very, very wealthy man who lived in a mansion. 
and got to heaven, died and went to heaven. And uh, as, when he got up there, the, the poor guy that lived down the street in a shack was given his glorious mansion. And he thought to himself, well, if he got that mansion, I can't wait to see what mine's going to look like. And they came around a corner, and he literally had a shack of a few boards and a tarp for a roof. And he's like, what gives? And the answer to him is, all we had to work with are the supplies that you sent ahead. Now, that's not how it works. But it's not not how it works. Right? What will our rewards be? Third, to die as gain means that the Christian's death frees him from earthly labors, trials, and temptations. And I'm going to tell you, the more you, the more you walk with the Lord, the more you serve Christ, the more desirous you're going to be to experience the last verse that we sang, Come Thou Found, on that day when free from sinning, I'll behold thy lovely face. I had a boy in my Challenge B class nine years ago. And I knew his dad was a very good and godly man. And one evening, while he and his wife were in the parlor talking before bed, they're in their chairs or just having that time of fellowship between a husband and wife where they were talk, telling each other what was on their heart. And Walter said to his wife, Mary Jane, he said, you know, Mary Jane, I can't wait to be free from this flesh and to never sin again and, and to never be tempted in a way that leads to disappointing my Savior. What Walter didn't know is that the next day, less than a mile from his house, he would be struck by a car and be in the presence of his Lord. But his desire is to be freed from sinning. And Walter was one of the most practically righteous men I knew. The more closer you walk with Christ, the more aware you will become of sin in its tiniest of forms. And we get to be free of all of it. Paul calls death in chapter 1 and verse 23 to depart. To depart. And that's a very specific word that has several contexts of usage in the Greek. One of those contexts is it's a word used of soldiers taking down their tents, breaking camp in order to move on. And Paul says that at death, our tent, our body is taken down while our spirit goes to be with the Lord. Amen. Sailors would use this word to describe a ship being loose from its moorings in order to set sail. And at death, the believer sets sail from this world, but safely arrives the shores of the king. It's also a political word in the Greek, describing the freeing of a prisoner. This body holds us prisoner to various temptations and weaknesses, but listen to me, death sets us free. Go read Romans 7 and 8 and see exactly what that means. It's also used by farmers. I like this one. Meaning to unyoke a yoke of oxen. Literally to take the, the yoke, the, the, the wooden heavy harness off of their necks when their work was done. They would get rubbed down with grass and be given 
feed and water, the toil was over. And one day that's going to be us. The yoke will be removed from our necks. Christ himself will embrace us. We will join him in his kingdom where there's no death, no mourning, no crying, and no more pain. Revelation 21.4. Robert Moffat, the pioneer missionary to Africa in the last century, said this. Listen to these words. We'll have all eternity to celebrate our victories, but only one short hour before sunset to win them. Did you all hear that? We'll have all of eternity to celebrate what God allowed us to do for Him, but we got one short hour before the sun sets to win those victories. We need to wake up. We need to get our heads out of the sand. We need to contemplate our mortality. so that we might be busy about the things that matter. Last one, to die as gain means that at death, a Christian goes immediately to be with Christ. A lot of questions about this. There's a lot of weird ideas, doctrines, and thoughts. What happens when somebody dies? Um, Paul says that when he departs, right here, he said, it'd be better for me to depart and to be with Christ. And he said, that would be very much better. In 2 Corinthians, jot it down, 2 Corinthians 5 eight, Paul teaches that to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. No transition in between. And this beautiful truth exposes the lie of four commonly held ideas about death that contradict the scriptures. And you may have heard of some of these. The first one is the concept of soul sleep. Have you ever heard that one? Uh, Seventh-day Adventists are the ones that popularize this. And I will not call them a church. They are a cult. And they teach that at death the soul sleeps while the body is in the grave until the future resurrection of Christ when Christ returns. And they base that on the numerous places in the Bible where it refers to death as sleep. That was just a euphemism in Scripture because death is so weak, it is described as sleep. It doesn't mean literally sleep. Uh, Jesus' story of the rich man and Lazarus, plus Paul's very clear explanation that I've already shared with you, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, shows that to be wrong. Here's the next one, the doctrine of annihilation. You ever heard of this one? They believe that at death we just cease to exist. We're no different than animals. Now that mostly comes from humanistic, naturalistic, materialistic humanism. But not all. I have a friend of mine in the Hebrew Roots movement where this is becoming more popular, this idea of annihilation. Um, Paul says, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men to be pitied. So if annihilation is true, there is no resurrection, there is no being with Christ upon death, then Paul's pronunciation there is an error in 1 Corinthians 15, 19. 
Here's the next one. I'm sure you've heard of this. It's gaining more popularity as we become less and less of a Christian culture. And that is the doctrine of reincarnation. You all ever heard of that one? You know what that is? Um, did you know, this blew my mind when I was studying this out. Did you know that one out of four Americans believes in reincarnation? And that the soul just keeps being recycled and recycled either in a better form of life or worse as a form of punishment. By the way, if that's true, some of you are coming back as skunks, snakes, and slugs. And I'll try not to look at you right now. What a, what a dumb idea, right? <laughs> but the scripture says in Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed unto man to die once and after that the judgment. Yeah, one shot at this thing, folks. And the last one, and I'll go through this quickly, but it's a doctrine of purgatory foisted on us by the Roman church. They teach that out of Vatican II is where this came from, that purgatory is a place, and I'm reading from them, of purifying fire where the souls of those who died in the charity of God and true and truly repentant, but who had not made satisfaction with adequate payment for their sin and omissions are cleansed after death with punishments designed to purge away their debt. They believe this. Now, you don't even have to be that smart to see what this undoes. Let me continue reading. Now, it's interesting that the, that, that the Roman church never defines what adequate penance is. And even further, that the church pronounces anathema, which is eternal condemnation, on anyone who denies that doctrine. And that comes out of the Council of Trent. Now, there is support for purgatory, but it's not in the Bible. It's in the apocryphal book of 2 Maccabees, chapter 12 and verse 46. The actual doctrine was invented by a guy named Pope Gregory the Great. Those of you that have done a little study in church history will know about him. That was in 593. But it, did you know that it wasn't accepted in the Roman church for another 850 years? Not till 1439 did purgatory actually become accepted by the whole church. But here's the problem with it. It clearly contradicts the scriptural teaching on a finished work of Christ. If you got to finish the payment for your sin, then Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection was not enough. And it renders any assurance of salvation impossible. So, Paul says to depart and be with Christ is very much better. And the only way he can say this is if his soul goes immediately into Christ's presence where he is accepted on the basis of Jesus' shed blood and righteousness. Remember Paul's words, very much better. It does not mean better than life at its worst, but better than life at its joyous best. Isn't that something? Doesn't mean better than life at its worst. No, listen to me. Better than Life at its joyous best. Better than the best day, the best moment you ever had in your entire life. Better, by 10,000 times 10,000, so much better is life with Christ.
during the Boxer Rebellion in China uh, a century ago. A missionary came, probably as near to death as anyone could come, um, and lived to tell about it. He felt the sword of his Chinese executioner on the back of his neck before it was lifted for that final and fateful blow. But at that very moment, the executioner changed his mind and let him go. The missionary told a friend, listen to this, this blows me away, that his first emotion upon realizing his freedom was disappointment. And here's what he said. I was disappointed that I wasn't going to see Jesus that day. <laughs> would that be us? We would stand up in church and give the testimony. Boy, I almost had my ticket punched, but praise God, I'm still here. And this missionary said, no, you know what? I almost had my ticket punched. I was this close to seeing the Lord. Man, maybe next time. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? So Fanny Crosby, you all know Fanny Crosby, the great hymn writer? Did you know she became blind as a young infant um, due to a doctor's error? She said later in life that she would choose blindness over sight. And here's why. Because the first face she would ever see would be that of her Savior. And she wrote a song about that. Well, my Savior I shall see. I shall know Him. I shall know Him when redeemed by His side. I shall stand. The first face she would ever see would be the face of Jesus. So in closing, let me say this. For the Christian, to die is gain. And I ask you, can you say truthfully, for me to die is gain? Can you say that today? And if not, you may need to go back one step and ask, is it true that for me to live is Christ? Because when that is true, when for me to live is Christ, to die is gain is a given. Maybe we need to start with death. Maybe this week we need to ponder that we're not going to be here forever. What's it going to look like when we're gone and what will we leave behind? Like Jay back there, Jay works for a funeral home. I work for several funeral homes that, together. We do a lot of funerals. You had two this week, I had one. Jay, you've had this experience. So have I. Call the family up. Tell me about your dad. Oh, he loved the Bulldogs. Big Georgia fan. Season tickets. All oh, his whole adult life was all about the Georgia Bulldogs. For him to live was the Bulldogs. And to die is a loss. Oh. If you want your death to be a gain, I think we got some repenting to do. And let me give you a good encouragement. In our D groups, we just started an introduction today, so you're, it's still ground floor. You can get there. Um, we're looking and delving into the spiritual disciplines. 
and there's more than you probably think. You say, what's that got to do with anything? Those, the more you are tuned into Christ on a daily basis, the more for you to live will be Christ. And the more for you to live to be Christ, the more death will be your gain. That makes sense? I'll tell you what, I, I couldn't help at the end of watching my pastor's funeral this week with tears on my cheeks there was a smile on my face because John loved to sing tenor harmony and we didn't need a tenor section in the choir because John carried the whole thing because he always sang out of his shoes and I asked him about that one day and he says when you love Jesus you can't help Sing as loud as you can. And I can't help but think that around the throne room of heaven today, the tenor section is very well represented as John is singing out of his shoes. And his death has been a gain. I want to live that way. How about you? As we prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's table, you know how we do it. Parents, you're in charge of children. They should not participate. They have not repented, put their faith in Jesus, and are walking in obedience to you and been baptized. If all that's true, then we need to celebrate together. I want to, us to pray as the Lord search our hearts. And as we do, I want to read to you the prayer from our Puritan forefathers in this valley of vision. It's called freedom. O Holy Father, thou hast freely given thy Son. O Divine Son, thou hast freely paid my debt. And O Eternal Spirit, thou hast freely bid me come. O Triune God, Thou dost freely grace me with salvation. Prayers and tears could not suffice to pardon my sins, nor anything less than atoning blood. But my believing is my receiving, for a thankful acceptance is no paying of the debt. What didst thou see in me, that I, a poor diseased, despised sinner should be clothed in thy bright glory. That a creeping worm should be advanced to this high state. That one lately groaning, weeping, dying should be as full of joy as my heart can hold. That a being of dust and darkness should be taken like Mordecai from captivity and set next to the king should be lifted like Daniel from a den and be made ruler of princes and provinces. Who can fathom immeasurable love? As far as the rational soul exceeds the senses, so does the spirit exceed the rational in its knowledge of thee. Thou hast given me understanding to compass the earth measure the sun, moon, stars, universe, but above all, to know Thee, the only true God. I marvel that the infinite 
that the finite can know the infinite. Here a little, afterwards, in full-orbed truth. Now I know only a small portion of what I shall know. Here in part, there in perfection. Here a glimpse, there a glory. To enjoy thee is life eternal, and to enjoy is to know. Keep me in the freedom of experiencing thy salvation continually. And Father, may we take that beautiful prayer of the Puritans to heart today, <clears throat> knowing that here it's, it's, we're, we're, we're looking in a very dim mirror, <laughs> but then face to face. And we will see you in all of your glory. We will behold you. And we will be finally and fully changed into your likeness. And on that day, we will cease from sinning. May we practice for that day today. May you not let us soon forget the admonition of St. Paul when he honestly, under the power of the Holy Spirit inspiration, said for me to live as Christ. You stamped that as correct and accurate. And because that was true, death was nothing to him but one giant gain. And yet, Lord, we hold so fiercely to this life as though you did not truly exist. Pray that you would break our hearts, that you would give to us the gift of a holy and a hot repentance that we would learn to live and to follow you and find such great joy that on that last day, with our last breath, but one name would be on our lips, the name of Jesus. May he be praised and may he receive today the reward for his suffering from our life that belongs to him. In Jesus' name, amen.